Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. I feel like I don't need to introduce Margot Price, but it is the convention of the podcast that one must introduce their guest. Margot Price is a force of nature. She is bigger than life. She's got a giant voice. She's a great songwriter. She's an activist. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's a human being with lots of thoughts and experiences and a journey that she's on. And it's so cool to get to hear about that journey firsthand. I think you're really going to love this conversation. She's charming. She's real. She's great. She's inspirational. And I think you'll find a lot in here to be inspired by. I'm really grateful to Margot Price for joining me. And just so you know, she is on her phone because the laptop wouldn't work. She is in her backyard on her back porch. So there's a train that goes by. There's some birds. There might be some dogs that bark. I actually like it a lot. I like the ambient noise. You really feel like you're having a conversation with a human being, which is just exactly the idea behind these wheels off conversations. I've missed being able to talk to musicians backstage. The last time I think Margo and I played together, we were on a cruise ship. So we were hanging out in the hold of an ocean liner talking about careers and families and rock and roll and, you know, all that stuff. So it's great to be able to reconnect with her, and I'm really glad I get to share it with y'all. Please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Margot Price. Welcome to Wheels Off, Margot Price. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is so great. For the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining us? I am joining y'all from White's Creek, Tennessee. Oh, cool. Just outside of Nashville, a little bit, yeah. Is it nice to have a little separation? It is. It's nice to be out in the country. And I feel like, you know, as musicians, we're always spending, well, we used to be spending so much time in cities and in transit and in airports. And I felt good to move back out so I could have some a little bit more peace and quiet. And you all just uh, rolled back into the country from, was it the girls just won a weekend? Was that the trip or was it another festival yeah. situation? <laughs> we were there for Avitz and then for the uh, Brandy Carlisle's festival. And prior to that, we were supposed to go, we were supposed to be in Mexico. I had quarantined for like months, you know, it was the surge of Omicron. And I kept thinking like, I don't think this is going to happen. <laughs> But I found out as I was packing my suitcase 12 hours 
before I was set to leave, um, that the Zen Company Festival was was canceled. Oh. So I was a little gutted because I had, you know, not even like went back to see family. We, I mean, whatever. It's good to stay safe and hunkered down when you have children during this anyway. But we'd been doing some insane levels of quarantining to not get covid and then everything fell apart anyway (laughs) it's devastating but now i can laugh about it i know it's funny just just a few weeks later now it does feel um, believe me this is the last we'll talk about covid i'm so sick of covid but it seems like it seems like we're on it seems like we're getting close right like you're probably booking dates and thinking looking ahead yeah i am and i think that we're gonna be out of the thick of it i mean i'm just I'm hoping and praying because, you know, this is our livelihood going out and playing shows. And as we know, things are being exposed in the tech companies and with streaming and with all of that. But it's how I put food on the table. And it's just like felt like my safety net was just like ripped out from under me, you know? Yeah. And not to mention just like missing the act of playing music and just how much joy that I, you know, I, that brings into my life and for that all to go away as you know, it's just like, hey, what am I going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, uh, what creative project are you working on at the moment and how does it light you up? Well, um, I've actually am finishing writing a book that I've been working on for almost five years now. <laughs> wow. So I wrote a memoir and when I started it, everybody said I was too young, but I think now by the time it's going to be out, I'm going to be, I'll be 39, 40. Um, but that's been um, a labor of love and just something, you know, I started it when I got pregnant with my daughter, Ramona, and I was really missing being on the road. And so it just kind of gave me something to do. And then it's just continued and I'm, it's, it's been nice to be able to escape into the past, like during all this trauma that we've been going through. Cause it's like, even though I thought those were the bad days, I'm like looking back and like, Oh, things were so simple. <laughs> so as a, as a fellow rocker who has literary aspirations, I wonder when you went into the, uh, the act of writing a memoir, how did you prepare? Did you like study memoir writing? Did you take any classes? Did you talk to friends who had done it? What was your, or did you just figure it out on your own? I did just kind of, you know, fake it till you make it. I think I, I have, I've read so many memoirs and I feel like a memoir junkie because it's such a good way to like dive into learning about someone's music when you can hear about, you know, how they, were raised and how they got through struggles and, and other things. So I feel like, you know, I, like everybody else, I read Patty Smith's just kids and it just like, Oh, it just was the most brilliant thing I'd ever read. And so that was what finally kind of took the scales. I mean, I've, I've read so many um, autobiographies of read Ronnie Spector's and, you know, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and George Jones and Loretta Lynn. And I mean, any, and Jesse Coulter, like any musician I've been into, I like read their biography because, you know, I'm just an ultimate nerd, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and but um, yeah, I figured it out along the way. It's not easy. 
I feel like with your music, you're, you know, you're pretty open. Like you've always been a, a great activist for causes. You've always been, you know, rendered yourself pretty open and vulnerable in your music. But I wonder like when you're writing a memoir, is the level of vulnerability ratcheted up way higher? Is it uncomfortable? Yeah, it's been something I've started therapy over, <laughs> <laughs> which I should have done a long time ago anyway. But I, I have went back and just rewritten things so many times because I want to be sensitive. I don't want to be like completely just burning lots more bridges, which I have sometimes made a <laughs> habit of in my life anyway. But, you know, I was uh, just trying to figure out how to tell my story without telling, you know, other people's things that might be sensitive to them. But at the same time, I'm like, if this affected me, I feel like I have the right to talk about it. So yeah, it's been, it's really, I'm honestly frightened to put it out because there's a lot of stuff in there that I almost was writing it as, you know, therapy, like songs are that way too. And now I'm like, you know, a lot of my family doesn't even know the things I'm about to divulge in the book. And so it's been sensitive, but there is a part that you have to keep back too, because there are just some things that are just sacred and, you know, people would have to be dead for me to talk about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, I wonder like you and Jeremy seem like you are really great collaborators, obviously, you know, in terms of working together. And um, is, has he been somebody that you go to with the book? Do you let him read any of it? Or are you just going to like come to him later and say, here, here it is? Well, a lot of it is about us. And the title is Maybe We'll Make It. <laughs> and it was like, it started from like a tour that we took where we were in a Winnebago. And, you know, it was like, first tour we'd ever went on and I'd booked it all under like a, a fake manager's name and a fake booking agent's name that I made up. And really, <laughs> so the whole name of the tour was just the maybe we'll make it tour. And we like filmed it with a little camcorder and we always thought about putting it out. And so I talk about that time a lot in the book, but that phrase just kind of kept coming back around like in our marriage and, you know, like after we lost a child and we went through some really intense times. And so it kept changing its meaning. And then like, even during the pandemic, it was like, Oh, maybe we'll make it like maybe civilization <laughs> will make it. Wait, it's a, it's so, a really rich phrase. It does work on a lot of different levels, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so since he's in there a lot and a lot of our personal life is in there, I have read him parts of it. He hasn't read the whole thing, Yeah, but I've, uh, I've definitely like sat down at night and I'm like, can I read you a little section? Then I'll end up reading to him for like two hours because it's our story. You know? <laughs> oh, that's so sweet though. I feel like, oh. um, so this is something you must have revisited in the writing. Uh, your, your earliest memories of knowing that you wanted to do this, whatever this crazy weird thing is that you do, that we do. Um, do you remember knowing early on that you wanted to be a performer, a songwriter, a singer, was there an epiphany moment for you or was it just something that was always, you know, in your subconscious? I think a lot of it was, was there. And, you know, I was always like, my mom put me in dance lessons and piano lessons and voice lessons. And I was like singing the national anthem at like, you know, 
football games and singing in church and everything. But I had brought it up, you know, like you have career day and tell the counselor, you write down what you want to be. And I was just like, I can't remember if I said like actress or like, I wanted to do like Broadway or like sing and dance and stuff. So it was like, I'm 12 or 13. And I remember my guidance counselor, Mrs. Erdman, she was just like, well, that's just not a career. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy to see how it just watch the arts programs get stripped away. And like, I was so lucky that I still had music class and we still did some like show choir and stuff like that. But I just really pushed for it. And my mom, she was like, I don't think that's fair for her to say that. So I ended up getting to go like visit this little small town theater in the Quad Cities and spend my day there. And but I just kind of always had people telling me that, you know, you need you just need to go to college, you need to major in communications, and you need to just get the 401k and all that stuff. And then actually I ate some mushrooms when I was like <laughs> 19 and like listened to a bunch of music. And I just, I dropped out of school and moved to Nashville. And that was, that was like it. It was just kind of like, whatever, I, knew, I could do whatever I want. <laughs> it's what your parents are most, not yours necessarily, but parents are most afraid of. You'll do mushrooms and drop out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, it was wild experience. I just... I don't know, nothing like kind of everything just changed after that. I just felt like there was possibility in the world again. You know, I think it's like a kid. A lot of times your dreams get kind of like the, the world just tells you that that it's not a good dream to have. And then, of course, I moved to Nashville and spent 12 years like just kicking around and like waitressing and like living in squalor. And I started to think like maybe everybody was right, you know. But I also like didn't have another skill set. So I just kept doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think that that gets underreported, right? Like the, there's a lot of stories of, you know, mythical Nashville where people move there and it's and it happens right away. Yeah. But um, but yeah, my understanding of your story is that you worked for a long time without anything really clicking before it finally did. It's yeah, it, there would always be these little like glimmers of hope along the way, you know, like like a really, really small label. I don't even think you call it an indie label, but a couple of guys that had like a, you know, a little bit of a trust fund or something going and they were like, we're going to help you. And, and then you end up like getting in debt or like paying oh. like managers a retainer or paying a publicist $10,000 after you do a Kickstarter and then they just disappear. Um, you know, there were all sorts of like little thing, little moments, like, my friend, Brittany Howard, I met her on a background vocal session at the bomb shelter when she was working as a post woman. And I just was so blown away by her voice. I'd never like been intimidated by another, you know, peer's voice. And I was just like, Oh man, she's got it. You know? And she even had, I know her mother was saying like, you should probably like just keep being a post woman and like stop the music stuff. And and she exploded like beyond Thunderdome, you know, and, and she, <laughs> she, then she was so sweet. Like I asked her to sing on my project, like, and she did. And, you know, I was like, man, I got this like duet with Brittany Howard. Like I thought that like somebody would like 
be into that. I thought the record was decent. And so then, yeah, we did this Kickstarter and then this publicist just like never even sent any of the stuff out. And (sighs) I just was so sick of like getting burned. And I mean, but also it's just like, I know a million talented people right now that are just like working jobs that they don't like. And that also like, in my opinion, should have made it. But I think that this world just kind of overlooks people that aren't like marketable right off the bat or when people are different or, you know, if, if it's not just like flashy and I don't know, there's, there's so many things that like go into making a career. And I just feel, don't you like feel kind of like, just like, it, there's a lot of chance and luck and of course determination and all the, you know, but it's like so many things have to come together to like really make any kind of dent in this world. It's, it's nuts. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, it's the gratitude thing, right? That, that sounds so corny, but it is so important. Whenever I start to feel, cause my kids are 15 and 18. And so college is looming oh. and the broken system <laughs> that is college and trying to pay for it and going into debt and all that stuff. And so, yes. I, you know, I'm thinking about, all that money stuff. And I'm just, um, so I'm freaking out. And then I have to remind myself about all my friends that would kill to have had the career that I've been able to have and to live in the house that I get to live in. And so, yeah, am I Mick Jagger? No, but yeah. (laughs) um, But you do, you bring up something that doesn't come up a lot in these conversations about sort of the, um, the way that artists, we are sort of by nature, less aggressive, certainly less fiscally aggressive, right? And then um, then like a hedge fund guy might be or whatever. And so we end up getting screwed over by, um, you know, publicists or whomever labels or, and it's, it's just, it feels, speaking of broken systems, like we live in a culture that doesn't, you talked about a safety net earlier, and it's kind of ironic that the safety net you were talking about was us busting our ass constantly, like, you know, 25 days a month to pay the rent month after month after month, when a real safety net would probably be having a government or a society that saw the arts as valuable and set up funds to support us. Oh, without a doubt. And then you get in here and you realize that even inside, like that, it, you, then you realize how broken it truly is because you just have all these people who want to capitalize off of the work that we're doing and, and ever you know, everybody's taking a little bit here, a little bit there. And then there is no 401k like retirement plan. You know, there is, there's no insurance like labels will have their employees that work for them. They get insurance, but do we get insurance? Like, no, we have to pay for that out of our pocket. And then I see these like legendary artists that are like, oh, well, I have to tour until I absolutely possibly can't because, you know, it's the industry has just changed so much. And I think that we're really getting to see such a bad side of it. And it's it's just going to take some like really revolutionary thought and some organization, I think, to turn this around. I I feel like in the past few weeks, a lot of things have been exposed. Like, I hope I hope that this is like something that that could be better. But I also think so many people at the very, very top, some of the huge artists that actually could make a difference, they're just really apathetic. And they're like, well, I'm fine. I'm not going to speak out against this like company that has all this power because I might risk what I have, you know, and it's like, 
you can only do so much ass kissing. <laughs> At least for me, I'm like, I don't know. I think that, that we've just really seen tech companies abuse this power in a way that resembles some administrations as well, you know, where it's like, they just keep doing things that feel really abusive and we just have to lay down and just not say a thing because we need to be thankful for the exposure. Right. Yeah. But exposure, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, in your performance and in your activism, um, you exude a, a, a lot of power, right? Like that's one thing I think about when I think about you. But I imagine that that you, like pretty much everyone I've spoken to in, in these conversations, they, there are internally generated obstacles, you know, like things that you build up in your mind that get in the way, like the, where voices in your head that tell you, you whatever, you're not good enough or imposter syndrome or success syndrome. And, um, but I, I guess I wonder, what have you come up with to get through those and, and, and move past those obstacles? I am still figuring that out. You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'd like to know if you have suggestions for me because you're further on in your career. Um, I do, you know, I just try to keep my head down and just focus on the work being good and try not to worry too much if like, you know, if I feel like I've said too much or alienated some people, because I think that most art that I appreciate, you know, makes you think and may, might make people, some people feel uncomfortable. But I'm like not going out to like write a, a Mickey Mouse, like toothpaste commercial. That's just, you know, like a, a sing-along song. Um, I think, you know, the one thing that the pandemic really did that was great for me is that it stripped away stripped away a lot I was just I was always keeping myself so busy that a lot of times I like wasn't processing like my emotions I was like definitely abusing alcohol and other substances and being able to strip all that away has been huge Because like, as you know, you get in this business and like everybody just kind of thinks that like musicians like run off of, off of beer and, you know, and tequila. And it's like, wow, that was like making it a lot harder than it needed to be for me. And I was so concerned about what people were going to think if I quit and if I wasn't going to be the fun party girl anymore, you know, it was like such a part of my identity And then like recently I've just been thinking about it and I'm like, the most rebellious thing that you can do is not drink. Like, because I think 93% of our culture drinks and like, it was just, it was really, it was really depressing me. And, And I already struggle with that anyway. So being able to strip that away, I started meditating. I started doing therapy. I'm like working out all the time. Definitely all my problems are not solved, but I'm able to feel what's going on and I'm able to be more present for my children and for my art. I mean, it's been great. Well, it really feels like you're on a journey. I love that. Yeah. Uh. it's nice to, to, uh, you know, just to like feel a new thing also when I'm like at the end of my thirties and I'm like 
it just feels like a superpower. Like I know a lot of people talk about like the pink wave or the pink cloud. I can't remember what it's called, but <laughs> like when you first get, you know, get sober and you like, you all, you have like a high from the sobriety because they've been like numbing it all for so long. So it's been good. I mean, it's definitely come with its challenges and, you know, still figuring a lot of things out, but the pandemic definitely expedited that process for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, right? The um, people don't realize until they're on the other side the clarity and how just I'm not sure that I've ever really heard of the pink wave that you're, I'm going to have to go look it up. But um, but yeah, that was the crazy thing for me was getting on the other side and going like, oh, my God, this clarity is better than any of the euphoria that I ever got right? from the booze. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's it's really strange. And I mean, I'd taken like long breaks before because I would get burned and I would get bit. And then I would be like, okay, I got to step back. But I think, you know, then I would be like, I'm going to moderate again and all these things. And you just go through it. And people around you tell you like, you don't need to quit. You're fine. Like, well, you're not feeling what's going on inside of me right now. (laughs) And so it's been, it's been really incredible, like way more incredible than I ever could have thought that it was to just cut out the booze. And I'm not sober. Like I'm still smoking some grass and you know, whatever it's, I think everybody just has to find what works for them. And that was what was really getting in the way for me a lot of days. And I think about like how much I did like with a pounding hangover and like, (laughs) it's just like, I'm like, wow, great job. Like that was, that was impressive. (laughs) So, so I wonder um, if you were able to distill all of this wisdom that you've been sharing the last half hour or so um, into what you might tell yourself if you were to meet yourself at 21 years old, but maybe in today's world, just because the circumstances have changed a little bit in the intervening years. But um, 21 year old Margot, if you were running into yourself, what advice might you give yourself? Oh, it's so hard because it's like, I feel like if I wouldn't have lived the way that I did, then I wouldn't be here so young. Like, you know, I I would say be easy on yourself. Don't, don't carry around so much self-hatred and so much judgment. And I would... I would probably tell her like, Hey, you're probably better off without it. Because even back then I knew, I like knew that, that it was just like making me feel so sick, but I just, I can't, I I really can't believe I'm finally out because there there were times where it would be like, it wasn't so bad. And, you know, I could like moderate and do it, but like the absolute freedom that has come with this is like, that's all I really want in my life is just to be free. And I thought that like doing those things was like somehow this like representation of like my freedom and like, just, you know, it's been the exact opposite. I would, I would tell her that like, look for freedom in the other ways. (laughs) Well, I just, I think the world of you and I'm so glad that I have gotten to talk to you today. Thanks so much for sharing all this wisdom. Thank you so much. I've been, I've been really looking forward to it.
Yeah. And enjoy being home and tell Jeremy I said hi and have fun with those kiddos. And it's great to see you. And I hope our, our paths cross in real life soon. I know. I hope we can like perform together sometime down the road. Your lips to God's ears. Well, thank you so much, Margo. Take care. Thank you, Rhett. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.